through chapter 13. We may end up just kind of reading uh, the end, but, um, but we're in pretty good shape now to really look at what is called the fool's speech. But before we do that, take a look at the screen and look at the outline of what we've just seen. You may want to uh, jot some of those notes down as, as we go, but look at... Um, the way this is laid out. So you have accusation one against Paul in this section we've just looked at is Paul is an inferior public speaker. So again, in that Corinthian context where public rhetoric, if, if you went to advanced learning in that culture to like what we would think of as a PhD or something, it was in rhetoric. You start out in grammar school basically mimicking the uh, speeches in the handbooks and then you Went all the way to PhD was how how do you do this publicly where you become a powerful public person who is a person of influence. Accusation two was Paul preaches free of charge, and we saw him say that um, I'm going to boast, keep this boast in all of Achaia. Uh, I'm not going to give up speaking free of charge because it makes me distinct from the false teachers. C was Paul's commitment to his pattern of ministry. His commitment to his pattern of ministry, which uh, I was just speaking of. And then fourth was the deceitful character of the false apostles. I didn't emphasize this, but one of the uh, key words there is that they are deceitful workers. They're deceitful. Uh, They are using words in a way that is twisted to deceive people. And so Paul is uh, leveling these very harsh accusations at, um, at these false teachers. Now, the next bit in the uh, development of the book is what I call embracing fools. And again, it's, it's a very harsh, very strong language that he's using here in appealing to the Corinthians right before he launches into what we call the fool's speech. Um, and I'll introduce that when we get to it in just a moment. But for the moment, take a look at verses 16 through 21. And we're going to at least just see what he says here. Um, And here's how it goes in verse 16 and following. I repeat, a certain person, again, notice that he won't name the false teachers. Uh, He doesn't name him. He he says a certain person um, here in describing him. A certain person must not suppose me to be a fool. But if that person does, does think of me that way, you at least... Corinthians, embrace me as you would a fool so that I too might boast a bit. In other words, you guys seem intent on embracing idiots. So if you will, at least embrace me like an idiot. You know, if you're going to, if that's what it takes for you to embrace me, embrace me like a fool. Um, And that's why he's going to go into the fool speech here just for a moment. Verse 17, in this boasting stratagem, I've translated it, this this kind of strategy of boasting, the way I am speaking is not the Lord's way of doing things, but, as it were, an exercise in foolishness. In other words, what I'm about to do in in giving you the fool speech that I'm about to do, this this is really not the best way to do things. Isn't that interesting? This is inspired scripture we're speaking of here. And so he says, look, guys, this, this is really not the best way to do things, but if this, what it, if, the, if this is what it takes for me to act foolishly because you, you are in the habit of embracing fools, I'll do it. 
So this is really not the Lord's way of doing things, but as it were, an exercise in foolishness. Since many are boasting according to human standards, I too will boast. Now, this is where I said earlier, he's pushed to the wall. He's been telling them all along, I'm not going to play by the games of these false teachers. I'm not going to argue and boast according to human standards. But now you've pushed me to the wall, and if that's what it takes for me to boast, I too am going to boast. But it's not what they think. Verse 19, you cheerfully put up with fools, you wise people, you. Again, he's using sarcasm there. You cheerfully put up with fools. Indeed, you put up with it if a certain person enslaves you, if a certain person eats up your resources, if a certain person kidnaps you, if a certain person puts on airs around you, if a certain person slaps you in the face. Now, I'm, I'm rendering words there that are, that are ambiguous in the Greek text. So, your translations are probably a little bit all over the place with the way this is rendered because the terminology, as he uses this terminology, is, uh, is a little bit difficult to unpack. In uh, verse 20 there, um, he just says that they are people who are willing to be enslaved. Uh, the term there is katadouloi, you're, you're willing to be Treated as slaves is, is the literal rendering of that. If someone, kata estie, if someone eats you up, swallows you down, and I think it's an allusion to the fact that the false teachers were going in and absolutely gobbling up the resources of the people. Sound familiar? Yeah, so you have false teachers who go in and they prey on others, in order to consume their resources. Think again about the cultural context as we described it. Um, the the uh, sophist speakers, their whole thing was to go in and, and line their own pockets by being the best speaker in town. And so he's evidently, we're getting a window here on, on what was going on, uh, what they were doing, but they were going in and they were they were in some way eating up the people. In other words, consuming the people for their own advantage. That's why I translate it with the sense of um, if they eat up your resources. If a certain person kidnaps you, uh, the terminology that he uses there is is a, a very normal word in the New Testament that just means to take or to receive. Lambano, for those of you who've had a little bit of Greek, it just, it just means... Um, you know, they are grabbing you, they are taking you. And then finally, if someone um, puts on airs is the way that I translate um, that next term there. Somebody who is, who is thinking more highly of themselves than they should. So they come into the room and they kind of are puffed up and they're like, you know, I should be the person of honor here, you know, that kind of attitude. And he says, if they do all of these things, then that's the kind of person that you embrace, even if they slap you in the face, if they treat you dishonorably, insult you terribly. So the only thing I would say here is that um, if, 
if this is a window into what is going on, what we're seeing here is that part of the um, kind of development or, or unfolding of the ministry, quote, that was going on by these false teachers is it was harsh, it was something that was damaging to the people, um, it's something that was actually uh, treating them without dignity because that person was the center of everything, whoever the false teacher was. And so Paul says, um, you know, if this is what strength looks like, because again, the accusations against him were that he was not a strong leader. He says, if that's what strength is, then I admit I'm weak by comparison. So he is um, really giving us a, a clear picture of the damage that these people are doing. Verse 21, I am ashamed to admit that we have been weak by comparison. Nevertheless, whatever a certain person dares to boast about, I'm talking like a fool, I too dare to boast about that. Um, the word shame here, or being ashamed, again, remembers this fits into that paradigm of honor and shame in the culture. And so he is saying that, you know, I'm being accused of being a weak person, of being a shameful person. Yeah, he said, if, that's, if that is the nature of their strength and my weakness, then I will bear that badge of shame. Because um, it's, what they're doing is very much out of the line of character of the gospel. And then he says, okay, you want me to boast? Let me boast. And now what we find in verses 22 and following is what we call the fool's speech. And I, I actually entitled this the countercultural fool's speech in my commentary, I believe. Paul's countercultural fool's speech. And this falls into two parts. The first part is in um, chapter 11, verses 22 through 29. And it is going to lay out like this. Let me give it to you, and then um, I'm going to kind of talk through uh, this first movement of the fool's speech. So let me go ahead and give you the structure of it, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background of what uh, is going on here, kind of set this up a bit, and then we're going to talk through it and see if we can unpack it a bit and take a look at this first part of what we refer to as the fool's speech. This is Paul's boasting. Uh, Paul Barnett, one of the uh, keen commentators on 2 Corinthians, calls this a daring countercultural exercise. What Paul is doing here is he's boasting in a way that runs counter to the emphasis of his opponent's rhetoric, specifically boasting about one's trials for which there was precedent, and you could find in Greco-Roman oratory a leader, for instance, talking about, you know, his trials and how he is born up under things for the state and that kind of thing. But generally speaking, uh, this did not fit the sophist triumphal rhetoric of successful power leadership, okay? So the type of, of boasting where Paul is talking about his list of hardships and that kind of thing, you could find you know, at, at moments, elements of Greco-Roman rhetoric where um, a person might 
say, you know, I have borne these things for the state. I suffered during the war, you know, that kind of thing. But Paul, what Paul is doing here is very countercultural to the whole ethos of the sophist and these false teachers' rhetoric, which we know, as we've already seen in St. Corinthians, was all about power and status and having it all together and being the best speaker in the room. Uh, that's what the Corinthians, who were kind of um, in the wrong place, were asking Paul to boast about. And so what Paul does here is uh, he, he comes up with what um, one scholar has called a ruthless parody of the pretensions of his opponents. So he's, he's boasting, but he's turning their boast exactly inside out. It's exactly the opposite of the kind of boasting that they were doing. What Paul is doing is he is presenting himself as the suffering servant who has faced a life and ministry of shame for the sake of the gospel. So he is absolutely turning it upside, upside down. He's drawing them in by beginning his boast with something that might be expected, boasting about his Hebrew and Israelite heritage. He was glad to stand on equal footing with his opponents on that point. But when it comes to the question of Christian ministry, that's 1123, he no longer concedes equality. Indeed, the apostle insists on his superiority, but it is a superiority based on weakness, not strength. Do you see the difference? Does that make sense? So his, his boasting is countercultural because it is centered in a weakness and the gospel going forward on the basis of what often would be considered shame in that cultural context. All right, so let's read together. I'm going to read out loud um, down through verse 29, actually. And then I'll just kind of walk us through some of the concepts that are going on here and uh, see what we can see. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they Christ's ministers? Parenthetically says, I must be out of my mind to be talking like this. I am superior to them in this regard. In much more difficult work, in many more imprisonments, in much worse beatings, often staring death in the face. On five occasions, I received 40 lashes minus one from Jewish leaders. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was pummeled with stones. Three times, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I've spent adrift in the open sea. Often during my travels, I've experienced dangers from rivers, dangers from bandits, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, Dangers among false brothers, <laughs> the immediate situation. In exhausting work and hard labor, often going without sleep. In hunger and thirst, often doing without food. In cold temperatures and without adequate clothing. Apart from other things I could mention, pressure, my anxiety about all the churches weighs me down every day. And who is weak? And I am not weak. 
Who is led into sin, and I am not livid. Really angry. All right, let's talk through this a bit. He starts in verses 22 and 23, uh, down through the second part of 23, with questions of identity. Questions of identity. And he has four questions and four answers here in this part of the text. The first three questions have to do with ethnic identity. Um, He basically is using language here of what it meant to be a religiously devoted Jew. Somebody who, who carries this identity in the culture, somebody who is a Hebrew. Um, The um, term here could be used either as ethnic and racial in designation, but it also could be used as a title of honor, you know, an identity that these are, this is my ethnic identity. It, It was seen as kind of a tribe of honor. It could distinguish the Israelites from other types of people groups. The false teachers were Israelites as well. They were, quote, Hebrews, and they were Israelites, which is somewhat synonymous to the idea of being a Hebrew as God's covenant people. Um, But it was often used in the Greco-Roman world to just be another way of referring to our people. And so it's also roughly synonymous with the idea of being the descendants of Abraham, or seed of Abraham. So he's driving these three designations home, saying, look, I am one of the chosen people. This is my ethnic identity. This is badge of honor for me in terms of who I am. But the fourth question he gives here is also a question of identity, but it is the real rub for Paul. What does it mean to be a minister of Christ? And he's saying, they're claiming to be minister of Christ. Are they ministers of Christ? Well, so am I, but even more so. How do you know a true minister of Christ? Well, Paul's going to say, because they've suffered for the gospel. They've suffered for the gospel. So are they uh, ministers of Christ? He parenthetically says, I must be out of my mind to say this, the terminology that he is using there is, uh, is, is the idea of somebody being crazy. He says, this is nuts for me to talk like this. But he then goes on to describe how he is more than they are in terms of being Christian ministers. And the more than is, here are all the ways I've been persecuted, and these are my marks of identity in terms of Christian ministry. So he uses um, various trials and circumstances and dangers as identification marks for true Christian ministry. So second point here is general characterizations of trials, which are in the second part of verse 23. So he says there, I've been in much more difficult work in many more imprisonments, in much worse beatings, often staring death in the face. So when he's talking about these, um, these difficulties that he's facing here, these are just kind of general descriptions 
of the things he has been involved in. The term that's used here of, of difficult work is kapos or kopos. The reason why I'm, I'm pronouncing differently is there, there are a couple of different approaches to pronunciation today that I'm kind of grappling with and thinking through right now. Um, what he's saying here is this is a type of work which is, is more than just kind of normal work that somebody does to support themselves. It is more difficult work. It is, uh, it is the type of labor that is really grueling. It's, it's, it's really something that is very, very tough. Um, in my life, I've, I've not had to do that much of just really, really hard manual labor, but I remember one time when I was young and I, I was a teenager and my dad land, uh, lined up a job with me with one of his friends and it was baling hay. And uh, the heat uh, in Tennessee in the summer is grueling, so I think today it's about 39 uh, there, something like that, humid. And we were out in this, um, in this field, and what you did is you followed b- along behind the truck. At that time, they have machines that do this now, I think. But you would reach down and get the bales of hay, and you would throw them up in the truck, and the person in the truck would catch them and stack them. And boy, you know, I... I was getting hay, itchy, itchy hay, all down my shirt, and I was sweating. It was just terrible. It was horrible. And by the end of the day, I was so exhausted from that work, I was just laid out on the floor at night, you know, uh, just wiped out. It was just grueling, difficult, hard kind of work. And Paul says, look, the type of work that I've done in the gospel is one that is involved just difficult work, kind of long hours and that kind of thing. So the type of work that, that I've been involved in, Paul says, has been in difficult work. I've been imprisoned more times than they have. In, I've also experienced much worse beatings. And so he's just describing common aspects of persecution that we see, for instance, in the book of Acts. You think about Paul's beatings and imprisonment at Philippi. And so he had been caught up in these situations where um, he, had, he had just been hurt terribly physically. He says, he describes it here as staring death in the face. Uh, literally, it's in many brushes with death, often in brushes with death. And so I translate that as often staring death in the face. It's, it's the idea that he just was constant in constantly in a situation of peril. Um, so he, he faces mob actions against him, all of these kind of things. So these are general trials, and I think those, those make a lot of sense, so we won't go into detail. Let me say a word about the specific trials that we see in verses 24 and 25. Look at those verses again. On five occasions, I received 40 lashes minus one from Jewish leaders. I think I mentioned this the other day, that in the synagogues, um, this kind of punishment was common. It uh, was a type of punishment that is prescribed in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 2 and 3. Um, and so the idea was they refrained from giving 40 lashes to put a limit on the type of punishment that could be um, given because... The, the Old Testament text suggests that it would be degrading to just beat somebody to death. So um, the idea that this 40 lashes it's, um, is, is 
or the 40 minus 1 kind of developed in Judaism. Um, I think the 40 minus 1 was a way of making sure that you didn't miscount and accidentally, you know, go over 40. So um, you have the tractate in the Mishnah, kind of Jewish teaching that is collected later, says this punishment was to be administered with a strap of three hide thongs, two-thirds on the back and one-third on the front of the offender. So you're talking about here, at least the Mishnah remembers the practice as being something that involves these long leather strips that then um, would hit a person on the back two-thirds of the time and on the front one-third of the time. Local synagogues throughout the Mediterranean world were the place where this took place. And uh, so because that was the court system in Judaism, in Judaism, Local courts were held in the synagogue. So that's what he's talking about there. Three times he was beaten with rods. Um, This was a Roman form of punishment. And so the Romans um, actually had an attendant who ceremonially walked in with the rods, and at times there was an axe in his hands as well. And the rods were used to, to beat people, And then, in some cases, the axe was then used to behead them if they were really bad. Uh, Acts 16 recounts when Paul and Silas went to Philippi, to that Roman colony, and they were beaten with rods. So, uh, Paul says, three times I was beaten with rods. He goes on and he gives a description of, um, once I was pummeled with stones, we know of that from the book of Acts when he was stoned on the first missionary journey. Three times I was shipwrecked. We don't know all of the occasions of him being shipwrecked. In fact, when he experienced, when he was writing 2 Corinthians, he had not yet experienced the shipwreck that we see at the end of the book of Acts. So we're really not sure about the specific places uh, and times that he was shipwrecked here that shouldn't bother us too much. Uh, Luke, again, is having to do a, what is called a telescoping in his telling of, of the history of the early church. He can't tell everything, so he's having to kind of compress the story and just include the most important bits to, um, you know, to kind of carry forward his story. But Paul says that he was shipwrecked um, these times. And then he says, a night and a day I've been adrift in the open sea. Um, one of the things I did when I was doing my St. Corinthians commentary, especially trying to work out the chronology, I did a lot of study about sea travel in the Mediterranean world at that time. And um, in that situation, you find, as I mentioned the other day, that only about a quarter of the year, about three months of the year, were seen as just really safe to travel by ship in the Mediterranean world. Um, there were another three months that were okay, uh, they were seen as, you know, you're starting to kind of take your life in your hands a little bit, but, but there could be a little bit dicey depending on the weather. But the other six months of the year, you just did not travel much on the open sea because uh, especially things, the weather wouldn't be good and it would be cloudy and rainy often, and therefore you could, the, the pilot couldn't see landmarks. That was the key. They couldn't kind of navigate where they were going, and when you were in fairly unfamiliar uh, territory or waters, 
the danger was not that you were going to get blown off course or something. The danger was that you were going to hit a reef or rocks underneath the water. And if you went into a shipwreck, for a lot of people in the context at that time, that was a death sentence. And so they, uh, they were terrified by that. So when Paul talks about spending a night and day in the sea, that was just a terrifying prospect for people in the Mediterranean world. And he says, look, I've experienced that kind of thing um, in the course of my ministry. Now, let me just push the pause button. Do you see how what he's done here in his speech, in his boasting, is he begins launching into kind of ethnic identity, which, you know, these false teachers would also claim. But then immediately, he just goes into a long laundry list of just very, very difficult, bad situations. You take any one of these things, and they would have been overwhelming for most of us to talk about the time we were beaten up or we were imprisoned or something like that. Paul's giving a whole list and saying, look, this has characterized my whole ministry. It's been very, very difficult. So he talks about uh, now a list of dangers in verse 26. He says, often during my travels I've experienced Various kinds of dangers. Dangers from rivers. Um, They often didn't have bridges going over rivers in that day and time, and you would be uh, really putting yourself in danger to try to cross a river because, again, uh, it could be uh, something that would kill you very quickly. Dangers from bandits. Even though the Romans were very good at, at doing away with piracy, because uh, the terminology here could speak of bandits like up in the mountains or something, but it also could speak of pirates. Um, the Romans were really good at eradicating that kind of stuff, but still there were pockets of people who were crooks and robbers and, and that kind of thing. And so if you traveled, you often tried to travel with other people because it was very dangerous to travel on your own because people would hide up in the hills and they would waylay people and kill them and steal their stuff, but he says, uh, so was in, in that kind of danger. Um, I was danger from my own people, the Jewish people. It was danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brethren. That pretty much covers everything, right, in terms of context. I mean, the country and the city, <laughs> you know, so he's just giving a wide scope here in terms of all of the difficulties that he has, that he has faced. He then goes on, and of course, he mentions the false brothers here, pointing to the the, uh, false teachers, you know, people who are claiming to be Christians, but they're really false. And then verse 27, in exhausting work and hard labor, often going without sleep, sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often doing without food, in cold temperatures, and without adequate clothing. When you got out into the world at that time, um, it was very, very important that you went with adequate clothing, adequate cover, adequate food, because most of the time when you're traveling through wilderness areas, they're just, you didn't have resources. And so Paul says, my travels have often taken me into situations which have been very, very difficult. And so he goes into this long list of, of difficulties Um, Now what he is going to do in verse 27 is he goes into a general characterization of his trials. Look at verse 27. In exhausting work and hard labor and often going without sleep, etc. These are are not given any particular time or place. It's just saying 
I've been characterized by being put in these situations. And then he culminates in verse 28 with his anxiety about the churches. Apart from other things I could mention, pressure, my anxiety about all the churches weighs me down every day. So he, he talks about all these external physical things, and then he talks about the emotional weight that he experiences because of you know, the, the anxiety that he feels about the churches. Again, this, this should be received by us as a word of encouragement in the sense that um, the same type of, of uh, anxiety that you and I may face at times lying awake in the middle of the night because of some difficult situation in the church, Paul experienced anxiety because of the stuff that was going on in the church. Um, your culture, I'm guessing, is very much like my culture. Uh, our values in modern Western culture would be toward security, uh, comfort, prosperity, you know, having, having the food that we want, not just the food that we need, the sleep that we want, not just the sleep that we need. It's why, you know, uh, we, we just have this kind of sense that if we're not getting these basic needs met, then something's got to be wrong. You know, God, where are you in this, in this situation? And yet Paul says this is, these are normal patterns that have been there in his execution of ministry. Um, so it's not that you and I need to necessarily embrace hardship or go looking for hardship. This was the, this was the pattern of what God had called Paul to. But we do need to evaluate how we are responding to the types of difficulties that we face in the course of ministry. And at times come up for air and say, look, I can look at the example of Paul. Sometimes difficulties and hardships are just part of the deal. It's just part of what it means we follow Christ faithfully into things that are, that are challenging. And, you know, reading this list is, is challenging to me because I am a creature of comfort. I like comfort. I like things to go well in the right way. Um, so it, it's something that I need to come back and bring my heart before the Lord and, and mainly make sure that when things are challenging or tif- difficult or I'm having to work especially hard, I'm not whining about it, uh, if, if I'm being obedient to Christ in, in fulfilling the ministry that God has given me to do, then I need to, I need to see this as something that at times is, is kind of normal for Christian ministry and Christian life. I think we can also use this as, as an opportunity to look around us at people who don't have the resources that we have, who are facing very difficult ministries and just ask ourselves, how can we support them more faithfully? What can we do to kind of help them, encourage them in the ministries that they are carrying out? So he, he kind of culminates with this uh, idea about anxiety about all the churches. I, I, I don't know about you, but in my ministry, especially back when I was pastoring the church, one of the co-pastors of the church, oh, there were times of tremendous emotional turmoil in the process of pastoring trying to trying to care for the church and it's just because you care deeply and you want things to go well and and things don't always go well it can be a very difficult kind of thing so be encouraged if if that's you know something that you're facing right now let's push the pause button there just for a minute 
And um, we're going to go ahead and introduce this next part so that when we come back, we're going to actually look at the Paul's thorn in the flesh passage. But let me see if you have any questions um, before we kind of look at this brief transitional bit in the speech that is going to set up this, the fool speech itself. Do you have any questions about this, this list? And I kind of just zipped through that pretty quickly, but I think most of this stuff is pretty transparent and understandable. Yep. Um, it, almost, it almost seems that the last thing that he mentions about the daily um, pressure or anxiety is almost for him the most difficult. It's almost a, on top of all of this is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's the culmination of, of this part of the list. Can anybody tell me why did he culminate? I didn't say this. Why did he culminate with that point? Because he's feeling it in the midst of, of grappling with the Corinthian situation. So he, he culminates with his anxiety about the churches because he's right in the middle of trying to pull the rest of them over, you know. And, and in essence, it's a way of him expressing, you know what, guys, you're the problem too. More than all these other things that I've faced right now, you need to understand how difficult this is for you to be having the posture that you have in relation to me right now. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a beautiful rhetorical strategy. It really is. And it's, it's appropriate, and it, I think it's effective. All right, another question about the, uh, the list. A lot of this is just pretty straightforward, I think. But do you have any other question or comment on that part of the uh, fool speech? Okay, one more time. Uh, so he's using the language of foolishness, but it's basically in quotation marks, kind of. Yeah. The foolishness part is that he's playing like he is going toe-to-toe with the false teachers and he's going to brag and boast in their line, you know, kind of the way they would. But, but really what he does is immediately kind of flips it around and... Um, and, and it's not foolish boasting, really. He's just giving a clear picture of what real Christian ministry looks like. So it, it's like uh, the, the scholar said, it's a parody of their type of boasting. Um, so when he says, um, I must be out of my mind speaking like this, he's basically saying um, from your point of view, but not really. Well, when he says, I'm out of my mind, he's specifically talking about the bit that he says there, I'm a better Christian minister than, than they are. That's really, what he's, that's really what he has in mind there, because that, that's right there, I mean, right in the immediate uh, context. Paul, Paul would say, this, I, I just don't talk like this. Paul doesn't go around the Mediterranean world and say, hey, I'm better than he is. You know, it reminds me of when I was little and, you know, kids get, get into a spat and you say, well, my dad can beat your dad up. You know, my dad's better than your dad, you know, that kind of thing. 
Paul, Paul's just saying, I, I don't use that kind of language. But, but immediately after saying I'm a better minister than they are, he says, let me tell you how, I get beat up a whole lot more than they do. I get imprisoned a whole lot more than they do. So it's, that's, where he, that's where he turns the tables on them. Okay, um, yes. When it comes to the issue where there might be some kind of question over the authenticity of someone's ministry, knowing that sometimes hardship is just part and parcel of being an authentic minister of God, but sometimes when people fall under judgment or discipline, there can also be a form of hardship in that. Right. How, how would you distinguish best between those? If, if there's a differences of opinion about the fruits of that ministry, you know, if someone might say, oh, well, you know, everything's going well and this is for God and we're suffering these trials for his sake, and someone else might say, no, but maybe not. That fruit is actually not what you're saying it is. And Yeah. I, I would say that one, one mark that you're, you're dealing with somebody who really is suffering for appropriate Christian ministry is because really what they're suffering for is they're standing for the true gospel. I mean, that's why they're suffering. Um, you know, you, you think about the brothers and sisters in China who are suffering, who are being put in prison, you're being beaten up and that kind of thing, it's because of their message. Um, they won't conform what they're doing to the state church and limit their message. They're, they're actually standing for Christ, you know, by preaching the true gospel and trying to foster a true church, not a false church. So I, I would say the difference is, I mean, there are people who you know, get beaten up for all kinds of reasons, but what Paul is suggesting here is it's in the propagation of the gospel and the building of Christ's church. It's not because of something else. So that would be one, one way to think about it. Yep, one more question before we take a look at the, this little transitional bit, and then we'll take a, take a quick break. Okay, uh, look, at, look very briefly at the part here where he makes a transition. He's, in verse 29, we, we, I did read a minute ago, who is weak and I'm not weak, who's led into sin and I'm not livid. He's just saying that, um, you know, there, there are people in the churches who are struggling and, and it, it just is really hard on me. But verse 30 and following, he says, if I have to boast, I will boast about the things that display my weakness. There it is. What's he bragging about? He's a bragging about being weak. He's bragging about being weak. Verse uh, 31, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the city wall and escaped his hands. Now, he's alluding to uh, a part that we're actually told about elsewhere in the New Testament where he um, actually had to escape from danger. After he came and started preaching the gospel of Christ, he had to escape from uh, Damascus by slipping away, um, kind of escaping through a wall. So this is a midpoint transition in an oath where he says, I am not lying, um, and he talks about this escape from Damascus. Um, now, th this is transitional. Why does he use this really strange little story about his escape 
from Damascus. Well, I think his point is that I had to leave town, not as a dignitary, not as someone who was being honored. I actually had to be very, um, you know, undignified kind of escape by hiding in a little basket and people letting me out through the window and down the outside of the wall. He's just illustrating that his life is ignoble. It's, it's something that is not one of dignity. It's indignity at times uh, in the cause of the gospel. It's weakness. It's not what the culture would consider something that is honorable. It's, it's something that it involves um, indignity at times, a lack of dignity just by its very nature. Now, this doesn't mean, someone was asking, we were talking about at the break that, um, you know, there are times when a church may want to honor somebody who is visiting. You guys have been very nice hosts to me. You know, that, that has been great. Um, I was telling one of the brothers about the church that I went out to in California. It was a black church, and they gave me a guy who was my armor bearer. And what that meant was, uh, he was going to hang with me, and he was going to get me water if I needed. He was going to get me anything that I needed. He was going to make sure he was going to chauffeur me around in his car, you know, when I need to go to the hotel or anything like that. And, and there was actually kind of a lovely thing about that, you know, where they were, they were kind of honoring the people who were, you know, giving their time uh, and all of that. There's a, there's a line there that we've got to be very careful with where, you know, we treat people who come in to minister like celebrities. And uh, where, where is that celebrity kind of line? I'm not sure exactly, but it's where we quit seeing somebody as just a fellow minister who are you treating well, uh, well and with honor and that kind of thing. And when we cross over that line and we begin showing them special favor that, you know, is, is out of line with their servant status and, and that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's ambiguous. I can't say exactly what that is. What Paul is describing here as indignity, though, is where the gospel's bumping up against uh, other power structures and cultures that are pushing back and fighting back against the gospel. And, and the fact is, let me just kind of apply it in our situation. There are times that if you and I in the future are taking a stand for the gospel or for right teaching in our cultural context, that people will shame us in that type of posture and stance. They will not treat us honorably. They will treat us in a way that does not involve dignity, belittling us in that kind of situation. That's just going to happen at points when we are um, in a situation bumping up against power structures in our culture. All right. Okay, something to think about. Uh, we'll come back in just a few minutes to have our final session together, and we'll look at Paul's thorn in the flesh and this how he, what he does from there. I'll give you an, at least an overview of that so you can study it a bit more in the future. But let's take a five-minute break, Michael. I'm not sure where Michael went. Uh, five-minute break, and uh, we'll come back and wrap up. Thank you very much.